been teased by my wife because I've only actually had to wear glasses for a couple of weeks and I'm still not used to it. <laughs> takes, more than, takes more than glasses to make me look intelligent, I know that much. Well, 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 well. Uh, last week we had heaps of people away. We had school visits going on we, with the school, um, to other churches. We had heaps of things happening. Last week we looked at hell and wasn't that fun. Especially the personal stories and, and testimonies I was able to share about the topic of hell. No, not quite. And as I said this week, um, we're finishing off this series that we've been doing, looking at some of the core um, fundamental beliefs of Christianity and of the Bible. Um, and as I said today, we're going to look at uh, we're going to look at the second coming of Jesus and everything that is packed in with that. We're going to look at um, you know, the, the judgment. We're going to look at heaven. We're going to look at those sorts of things. Um, and I found that, I mean, this week it's, it's been challenging for me to try to work out what angle to take on this, like what to include, what not to include. And I have to admit, I found myself actually praying, Lord, please come before 11 a.m. on Sabbath so I don't have to go through but it hasn't happened. So um, I was happy for the singing and the worship, and then after that, <laughs> we'll get out of here. But apparently it's not to be, so we'll, uh, we'll keep going. Um, that whole thing about ultimate good, ultimate evil, heaven and hell, um, it's interesting when you talk to people in general, when you talk to Christians, I think it, you find that there's a lot of um, fear or anxiety or question mark around, well, what is going to happen at the end? What's going to happen at the end? What's going to happen in terms of heaven and hell? What's going to happen in terms of the end times? You know, I've, I've heard these things about Revelation and, and, um, and all sorts of wars and different nasty things that it talks about. Like, and there's fear and there's anxiety and there's question marks about, you know, what, what is all this stuff that's going on? And it's interesting um, that Jesus actually said, in, in the Bible it's recorded in Luke, and there will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil. The, the countries will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and the strange tides and the things that will be going on. And then he says, people will faint with terror. Now, I've seen people faint. I've never seen people faint from terror. Like, th there's, there's stuff going on here. There's a, there's a lot of anxiety and fear in the world. You look around, you know, in terms of, um, you know, personal financial security, in terms of um, things like global warming and wars and political instability and famines and the refugee issues that are going on around the world and Australia being knocked out of the, the World Cup. Like all these things, there's stuff going on and there's fear and there's, an, there's anxiety, cancers, job security, all these sorts of things. And I love an illustration that I heard online. Francis Chan is, um, is a preacher that I love listening to. And he says, you know, there's, there's a lot of fear and anxiety. It's a little bit like watching 24. Have you ever watched the TV series 24 with Jack Bauer and he's got to save the world? And, and it's a little bit like he says, look, I was watching 24 and I got to the final episode of the season and it's just all happening. And, you know, his, his girlfriend's about to be executed by the villains and, and the bomb's about to go off and everything's about to be destroyed. And he he gets to the warehouse and he's banging on the door and he can't get in and he gets on the phone and he calls up for help and he says, I need backup. And they're saying, we can't get there for 10 minutes. And he's saying, I don't have 10 minutes. It's, we've only got five minutes. I've got to go in myself. And Francis is sitting there watching going, don't go in. The bomb's going to go off. I've got to go in. 
And he says, then I stopped and I thought, hang on, this is season two. There's like seven seasons of this, of this show. Like, man, you're good. Just go in there. Do whatever. <laughs> and you know what? The whole second coming thing is a little bit like that. We know how this story ends. Jesus tells us what's going to be happening in the, in the future so that we can be prepared, so that we can be ready, so that we don't have to have that anxiety and fear. Isn't that a beautiful thought? And as you look through the Bible, virtually every Old Testament talks about Christ coming to earth and talks about our reconciliation with God being being brought back together with him and everything being um, made right. And not just the Old Testament. As you go through the New Testament, one in every 25 verses directly talks about the second coming of Jesus. Like this is the biggest, consistent, prominent theme in the whole of the Bible, the second coming of Christ. This is a big thing. I mean, you go through the New Testament, Matthew, you've got Jesus' prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Um, he talks about the bridegroom coming to receive the bride. In Mark, um, we hear about the householder going on a long journey and committing certain tasks to his servants until he returns. In Luke, um, we're told that the second coming of Jesus will be like the days of Noah and like the days of Lot. In John, uh, John quotes Christ saying, I go to prepare a place for you. Romans, we see him coming, putting all things under his feet as king and lord. 1 Corinthians tells us um, of the Lord's coming to awaken and raise the dead. 2 Corinthians tells us how we'll be recreated as new beings at the second coming. 1 Thessalonians um, tells us to wait for the Son of God. 2 Thessalonians gives us this wonderful, glorious picture of being reunited with God where we'll meet him in the air. Titus talks about our blessed hope. James tells us to wait patiently until the return of Jesus. And Revelation focuses on the end times and the second coming of Christ. Basically, the whole way through, that's what it's all about. The second coming of Jesus is the reoccurring theme, the final topic, the climax of the whole entire Bible and the whole entire Christian experience. This is what it's about. Being brought back together with our Creator and our Redeemer. Well, there's obviously a lot of information in the Bible about the second coming. And, um, and as I was preparing the sermon, I told you before that I was praying that God might come by 11 o'clock. Well, by the time I'd actually finished preparing the sermon, I actually started praying that He might delay because this is going to take a while today, guys. So settle in. Take a seat, get comfortable. There is a lot in Scripture about this topic. So when God calls, coming, ready or not, is that something to be feared? I'd say no. The second coming of Jesus is actually really good news. Have you ever played hide and seek with a young child? We've got three kids and they're older now, but when they were young, you, if you're a parent, do you remember what it's like? You'd play hide-and-seek, and, seek and you, as a parent, you'd count, because they, they obviously want to go and hide, and they go running off, and the whole way they're giggling and laughing, so you know exactly where they've gone. And then you count, and you say, ready, coming, ready or not? And you look over, and you can see their little feet sticking out from under the curtains, and you know exactly where they are, and the curtains are moving. And so you start walking around the room going, are you behind the sofa? No. And as you say that, there's laughter from behind the curtains. And where could you be? I'm behind the curtains. Like... 
And then finally you find them and you pick them up and give them a tickle or whatever else and they're laughing and giggling. They love to be found. They love to be found. And the Bible tells us that when um, God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, every evening he would come and he would spend time with them and they love to be found. And here those twins are now separated from God. God is not someone to be afraid of. The second coming of Christ is not something to be feared. It's something to be hoped for. It's something to be longed for. It's something that should direct our, our entire being, our priorities, and everything that we are and everything that we do. Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled or alarmed. You believe in God, believe in me too. I will come again to take you to myself, to be with me where I am. Don't be alarmed. I'm coming again. We're going to be together. So what's the second coming actually going to be like? What's it really going to be like? Well, in Luke, we have this really interesting um, sort of dialogue by Jesus. And I thought we'd take a few moments just to go through that. We'll break it up and we'll just have a look at a few elements of that. In Luke 17, starting in verse 28, Jesus says, The world will be as it was in the days of Lot. People went about their daily business eating and drinking, buying and selling, farming and building, until the morning Lot left Sodom. Then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Yes, it will be business as usual, right up until the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So we get, this, we get Jesus saying that it's going to be like the story of Lot. And he finishes with this, um, with this line. He says, remember what happened to Lot's wife. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. And if you let go of your life, you will save it. Remember the story of Lot. Remember Lot's wife. Okay, so let's just refresh our memories a little bit about the story of Lot and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, shall we? Let's just take a little detour for just a moment. The story is in Genesis. Um, it starts in about chapter 13 and goes through about chapter 19 with references to Sodom. And in chapter 13, we find that Abraham's out one day and he gets these three surprise visitors. Now, at first, he doesn't know who they are, but it turns out that they're heavenly beings. We believe probably Jesus and two angels. And they reveal their heavenly power to him by making predictions and doing some things, and they start talking. And Jesus says to them before he leaves, he said, Now, the people of Sodom are so wicked, and they're sinning so greatly against the Lord. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I'm going down there to, to have a look what's going on and if it really is that bad, I'm going to destroy it. Now, Abraham's mind goes straight to his family, his nephew Lot. Because you see, Abraham and Lot had been traveling together for years. They were so close. Lot was like a son to him. And the Bible tells us that over time, God blessed them and their flocks increased and their servants increased. And we get to a point where the two families are now so big that the servants are starting to quarrel. And so Abraham takes a lot aside and they stand up on a big mountain ridge overlooking the Jordan Valley. And it's interesting um, that the Bible actually describes the Jordan Valley in, in other parts of the Bible. And it says it was more fertile at that time than the Nile Valley the Nile River, it says it was almost as fertile as the Garden of Eden. Like the, it was a bountiful valley. And it's really interesting. I did some reading. We're talking about the geography, roughly where the Dead Sea is now. It's a desert. It's just salt. There's nothing there. And archaeologists have actually found what they believe are the remains of these five ancient cities that the Bible describes 
in, in these passages. And it's, it's really interesting to note that they've found cemeteries just outside these cities. Three cemeteries they've found outside three of these cities. Each cemetery holds more than half a million people. That's 1.5 million people living in this fertile valley just to produce enough food. It must have been an amazing valley. And so Lot looks around and he sees the rugged mountain terrain behind them where they've been living. He sees this valley in front of him. And Abraham says, look, you choose, mate. You go that way, I'll go that way. Whatever, that's fine. So Lot chooses to go. And the Bible says that he went down there and he pitched his tent beside Sodom, beside the city of Sodom, which was up one end of the valley in the early days. And then as we pick up the story, a couple of chapters later, we find that two angels or two heavenly beings come to the city of Sodom after they leave Abraham. And they're met by Lot, who's sitting at the, at the city gates. Now, this got me thinking, because not so long ago, when Abraham and Lot split, they split because his flocks were too big, his servants were too numerous. And now, we don't find him in a tent outside of Sodom. He's living in Sodom, and he's sitting at the gates. And he sees these strangers coming, and he invites them into his home for dinner and to stay the night because he's afraid for their safety. He knows what Sodom is like. And he's afraid that if they sleep out overnight, something bad's going to happen to them. So he invites them into his home. And the men, the people of Sodom, discover that they're staying at his house. And they come to try to kill these two men. And as a result, the two men, heavenly beings, make the whole town, the whole city, blind. Now, if Lot had had any question about who these people were, he no longer had any question about who these people were. He knows that they're from God. And the angels, um, the angels basically tell him that they're going to destroy the city and that he has to escape. And they tell Lot to go and warn all his family, all his friends, all his people that, that he can. Now, this has been happening around dinner time. And he spends all night trying to talk to people to tell them we've got to escape, something's happened, we've got to leave the city. And it says that none of them believed him. It's the Bible says they all thought he was joking. And so then as we keep going, he comes back to the angels and they tell him that you've nearly got to leave. The Bible says that as the first light of dawn started to appear on the horizon, the angels urged Lot. They urged him to hurry and escape with his wife and his two daughters that were living with him. And the Bible says, get this, they're urging him, we've got to go now, we've got to go now. And the Bible says, Lot hesitated. He hesitated. A city full of blind people, destruction's coming, we've got to go, rush, 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 and he hesitates. So the angels took them by the hand and rushed them to safety outside the city because the Lord was merciful to them. And the angel said to them, run for your lives, don't look back, and do not stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or else you will be swept away. And get this, Lot says, no. No, no. Mountains, really? Being there, feel uncomfortable? Not so good? Don't really like the sound of that. Hey, look, there's this little town right at the end of the valley bit more comfortable. Hey, what if I go there? Would that be better? Like, fire and brimstone about to fall on your head, and, he, and this is what's going on. And the angels again say, sure, 
we'll wait until you get there. But go straight away. The angel of Ashtoreth said, all right, I will grant you this request also, and I will not destroy the whole village that you're going to, but hurry, escape to it, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. And by the time Lot reached the little town, God rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them, along with all the other cities and villages of the whole plain, wiping out all the people and every single bit of vegetation. Pretty much how it is today. And then the Bible says, but Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. In fact, that's always made me curious. She turned into a pillar of salt. I I mean, maybe miraculous, but I don't know what happened. I don't want to get that. I went and did a bit of research on that. The original language actually says she became a watchman over the salty land. So I kind of, I don't know, but then I read that. I sort of thought, Pompeii. You know those figures of the people covered in ash and, and molten? Whatever? I don't know. But she became a pillar of salt or a watchman over the salt. When the Son of Man returns at the second coming, it will be like Lot's time. It will be business as usual, Jesus says, right up until the day when the Son of Man is revealed in a cataclysmical way. People will be shopping, socializing, going to work, busy, living lives, just trying to make ends meet and get ahead. Does that sound familiar? That's what it will be like just before Jesus comes again. And it's interesting, Ezekiel 16, in Ezekiel, the prophet actually describes what was so bad about Sodom in God's eyes. Do you want to know what he says their problem was? This is what he says. Sodom's sins were... Pride, so that means putting yourself before others or, or wanting your own plans before God's plans. Gluttony, enjoying the good life, laziness, all these three things while the poor and needy suffered outside her gates. That was this terrible thing <coughs> that caused the destruction of Sodom and the whole valley looking after themselves while the poor and needy suffered. <laughs> One of the things that really stood out to me in this, in this story, I guess, is the fact that Lot hesitated. He hesitated. Like, do you get that? And in Lot, we see a man who is troubled and challenged. Like, he hesitated for a reason. There's something going on in his head. And his problem is that he's got one foot in God's kingdom And he's got one foot in Sodom. One foot with God and one foot with the world. And in Revelation, Jesus warns about this to the people who will be alive right before he comes. And he says, you know what? You're lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I feel like vomiting you out of my mouth. Like I wish you were cold rather than lukewarm. This just doesn't work. You can't have one foot in my kingdom or one foot in the world. And we see that in Lot. He hesitates. Oh, which way do I go? I'm sitting on the fence. Now, I guess it begs the question, are we lukewarm? Do we have one foot in God's kingdom and, and one foot in what we enjoy in the world? 
So that was lukewarm Lot. But more than hesitating, more than hesitating Lot, Jesus actually singles out another character, and that's Lot's wife. He says, remember Lot's wife and what happened to her. If you cling to your life, you will lose it, and if you let your life go, you will save it. How do you save your life by letting go of it? How do you save your life by giving it away? I would suggest that it comes down to that issue that Sodom had with pride. Because elsewhere in the Bible, God talks about this and he says, you need to be willing to humble yourself in order to have a relationship with me. You need to be willing to put your plans and wants aside and accept my plans and wants for you. Because that's so much easier. The Bible says that Lot's wife looked back and... Um, and it's amazing. Lot, Lot's wife looks back and she became, a, or she turned into a pillar of salt. And it reminds me of work, just not long ago, probably about six months ago, when there was a lady driving past the front of our office and she looked back and she turned into a light pole. That was pretty amazing. I've actually got a photo for you, Clay, up on the screen. So, um, that's not coming, sorry. So, the car is upside down and the light pole is down on the road. Like, it was an amazing thing. There's cops around him. They're pulling her out of the front windscreen. It was an amazing event. The point is, don't turn back. Don't look back. The whole message of the second coming is we look forward to it. Every day we look forward to that blessed hope of being reunited with Christ. Now, Lot's wife was actually a Canaanite woman. She came from that region. She may have come from Sodom. Her family and everything else may have lived in that city. God said, don't look back and don't stop. But her heart wasn't with God. Her heart wasn't with Lot. Even though she had seen all these miraculous things and she knew who these visitors were, who these angels were, her heart was in the wrong place. And the interesting thing about her story is she was almost saved. She was almost saved. The angels took her hand and pulled her out of the city gates. They stood her at the front of the city and said, run, go, don't turn back. And she was almost at the little town of Zohar where she would be saved. Almost there. Because the angel said, we're not going to do anything until you get there. Remember? And as the fire and brimstone started to fall, she turned around. She was almost saved. There's a, um, I was brought up in an Eastern European family of Russian and, and Polish and Austrian parents. There were actually two, but there was a mixture of races. Um, and there's a Russian saying that I was brought up with, is that almost isn't near enough. And it can't but help us ask the question, how many of us how many of our friends, how many of our work colleagues, how many of our students, how many of the people that we care about will be almost saved? The other thing that we see from the example of Lot's wife, well, and us, but especially Lot's wife, is that God never warns 
say, God never judges without warning. God never judges without warning. God never punishes without clearly setting out boundaries and clearly making sure we understand this. God never judges without warning. Lot's wife knew, and yet she chose to do it her way instead of God's way. She was freely and mercifully offered salvation, just as we are freely and mercifully offered salvation. She was even dragged outside the city. And, and we know salvation isn't complicated. Being saved isn't complicated. It has nothing to do with being good people like we saw up here this morning. Nothing to do with whether we've done more good things or bad good things in our life like we were looking at this morning. It simply comes down to accepting Jesus' gift that he paid our price on the cross. It just comes down to belief. Lot didn't have to do anything to warrant being saved. He was even led by the hand out of the city. He was pushed. He almost, I can almost imagine him giving him the boot saying, on your way, son. It was harder for him to be lost than it was to be saved. And in Romans, we see this, we, there's this beautiful text. A lot of people know John 3.16, but this is, I reckon, right up there with him. In Romans 10, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved, not you're not, you know, well, you know, we'll see, we'll put it on the scales and work it out. If you, if you pronounce with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then it goes on. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And, and how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? hesitate and by all means don't be a lot's wife almost saved in in either your own relationship with jesus or in the relationships with the people around you and so we start to see how the second coming changes our thinking it changes how we live it changes our priorities and perspectives so what will the second coming be like well in luke Jesus keeps going. And in verse 34, he says, That night, when he comes, two people will be asleep in bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour together at the mill. One will be taken, the other will be left. Now, who's heard of The Secret Rapture? Who's ever heard of the movies Left Behind? There are a lot of Christians out there who believe that when Jesus comes, there's going to be a secret event. There's going to be a quiet event. You know, you hear these stories of, you know, a pilot flying a plane and all of a sudden, whoosh, he's gone. He's been taken to heaven and the plane goes down. Like, th there's all these misconceptions about what will the second coming of Jesus really be like. And this text is actually one of the key texts that people point to when they're talking about a secret rapture. Because they say, look, surely that might imply that there's two people working together in a field and whoosh, one's gone. But when you look at the total picture that the Bible gives, it's not that at all. What this verse is actually referring to is that you can have two people who are virtually the same, the same class, the same work, the same situation in life, living similar lives, but one's accepted Jesus and one hasn't. 
fact, they can be workmates, friends. And one knows Jesus and one's never heard of him. They're having a chat. Jesus promises that the second coming should direct our priorities and not the first. But this passage certainly doesn't, and the Bible certainly doesn't describe any kind of secret or, or small event. Jesus says that the second coming is going to be as cataclysmic as the destruction of that balance. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4, there's this wonderful passage. Christian uh, brothers, Paul's writes, we want you to know for sure about those who have died and that you have no reason to sorrow about those um, as people who have no hope in Jesus. We believe that Jesus died and then came to life again. Because we believe this, we know that God will bring to life again all those who belong to Jesus. We tell you this directly from what the Lord has told us. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself, get this, this is describing the event. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First the believers who have died in him will rise from their graves. Then together, we then who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will live with the Lord forever. So encourage yourselves with these words. The Bible teaches in multiple passages, everyone will see his coming. And that that event is going to be loud enough to wake the dead. It's no secret event. So how do we make sure that we're ready for Jesus' return? Let me just show you um, a passage in Luke 21. How do we make sure we're ready for Jesus' return? Luke 21, starting in verse 25. And there will be strange signs from the sun, moon, and stars. Jesus is talking about the period in earth history just before he comes back. There will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the soaring seas and the strange tides, and people will faint from terror at what they see coming upon the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone, then, after these signs have been happening, then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with glory and great power. So when all these signs begin to happen, don't be afraid. He says when all these signs begin to happen, stand, lift your head and look up because your salvation is near. See these signs, you know it's near. And then Jesus actually makes a bit of an aside to his disciples and he says, think about the fig tree. When you see the leaves starting to come on the tree, you know that summer's just around the corner. These signs are going to be like that. You'll know that it's just nearby. And then he gives them another example. I love the fact that Jesus gives this example. I don't get it, but I love it. He says, it's going to be like birth pains. Well, that's fun. It's going to be like birth pains. Now, Melissa and I have three kids. We've been married for a glorious lot of years. Um, 17, I think, and a half. Thanks, Reese. <laughs> but before we had kids, in fact, we had just gotten married. And, and we, went, we were living in Sydney and we went to a hospital where one of our friends had just given birth. And she had this newborn, lovely baby. So we went to visit um, this friend in hospital. And we went to the labor ward to visit her. Now, this hospital where we went was great 
They had all the um, all the like the suites for the ladies after birth all around the outside of the um, the hospital. So there were nice windows and nice views, and then all the rest was in a high rise tower. And in the middle of the label, in the middle of this floor, they had all the delivery suites, which I'm sure was a great idea on paper. But what it meant was when we arrived to visit our friend, we sat down in her room, and all we could hear was some poor woman who obviously wasn't having a lot of fun. And we were there for quite a while. And all we could hear was screaming and moaning and and all the rest of it. Now, we learned, Melissa and I learned a very important lesson that day about labour pains. As time goes on, they increase in potency, as we could tell by the volume, and they get closer and closer together. And this is what Jesus is saying it's going to be like as the end of time starts to occur. The signs are going to start to become more intense and they're going to come closer and closer together until the cataclysmic and extremely loud climax, much like the woman we heard in that lady's room. Jesus says, watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by extravagant lifestyles drunkenness or by the worries of work and this life don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap because no one knows the exact day or hour when this is going to happen only god the father knows but don't let it spring on you those signs that you can watch in matthew 24 42 jesus actually says if a homeowner knew exactly when the burglar was coming you can probably guess the rest If a homeowner knew exactly when the burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You must be ready at all times. Melissa and I and the three kids, when they were quite young, we went down um, nearby, probably a five-minute drive away, to watch some New Year fireworks one year. And when we came back to the home, we drove in through the back and we came in and and, um, I turned on some lights and I started opening some windows. And as I opened the windows, our house back then was elevated looking over the the footpath of the street i heard and saw a guy on his mobile phone he was quickly walking past and he said no no i know they weren't there a moment ago but they're home now we're not going to go in we're not going to go in this house and i just my jaw dropped 10 minutes later and our house would have been robbed and jesus says if the homeowner knew when the robber was coming He would be there and make sure that he was prepared. But the issue is, as people, I don't know about you, but generally speaking, certainly for me, we don't wait well. If I have to wait in a line, I'm not a happy man if it's too long. You know what I mean? We don't wait well. We get distracted and tired and we grow complacent and we procrastinate and we forget. We don't wait well. This isn't some uni assignment that you can do the night before. (laughs) We've all been there, haven't we? The question is, will you be ready and will you help others be ready? That's really the, the, the warning, the message, the commission that Jesus gives around his second coming. And even though for us who are waiting for his return, it, it sometimes feels like Jesus is delaying and why 
why have you come yet? And you think about what's to come, and you think, oh, wouldn't that be great? And you look at the pain around, you go, what's the hold-up, Lord? It's interesting that Peter actually reassures us with these words. He says, the Lord isn't being slow about his promise to return, as some people might think. No, he's simply being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to turn to him in repentance. God has a plan for this life, for this world. God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for our future. Our, our history of this world is not just meandering along aimlessly through space. It's not. God has a future for us. And we know how this story ends. With Christ returning and him reigning John 14, we read, don't let your hearts be troubled. The words of Jesus, don't let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Yes, I'm going for a little while, but I am coming back again. So, what will that be like? What will living with Jesus be like? What will heaven be like? Now, the interesting thing is that as a Christian, our goal isn't to get to heaven. Our goal needs to be to be uh, reunited with Jesus. Life with Jesus is heaven. In the Bible, um, Jesus tells a parable of a, a great treasure. And a man who is willing to give everything aside in order to get that treasure. And he says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And Paul says, everything else is rubbish. He actually uses the word ethmoi. Everything else is like compared to knowing Christ. And through the revelations that Jesus gave John, the vision that he gave John, John actually wrote down just a few words of what he saw heaven to be like. And they're amazing words. Let me just finish by reading a, a little bit of this to you. In Revelation 21, and going into Revelation 22, here's just a few snippets. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now amongst his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All these things will be gone forever. The holy city shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. The walls were made of jasper and the city itself of pure gold. Gold as clear as glass. And it had 12 gates, and each gate was made of pearls, each gate from one single pearl. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, 
flowing from the throne of God, it flowed down the center of the main street of heaven. And on each side of the river grew a tree, the tree of life. And that tree was bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. And its leaves were for the healing of all people. This is how the Bible finishes. He who is he, he who he who is the faithful witness of all these things says, "Yes, I am coming soon." The second coming of Jesus Christ and being reunited with him forever is the grand finale. It is the great climax, the final chapter of the Bible and of earth's history. And the great news is, we know how this story ends. The question is, how will you choose Dear Heavenly Father, as we've just taken a moment to, to have a look at just a small portion of all the passages in the Bible that talk about your second coming. I thank you for sharing with us how this story ends. I, I thank you for giving us um, that hope and that confidence. That, that we don't have to be afraid, that, that when we see the world falling apart around us, we can know, hey, you know what? These are the signs that you spoke about. And we can lift our heads with confidence and look to you for the answers. Father, I pray for every one of us here today. I pray that you will draw near, that your spirit will speak to us, impress us, um, lead us in the way that you would have us live. Pray that as we live our lives, that you will take us by the hand and lead us to safety, just as you did with Lot and his family. And we pray that you will come soon. And we pray that we would be drawn forward to that safety.